Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on August 15, 2017 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall. The theme for the evening is In the Flesh. Let's call up our first storyteller to the stage. Going first is really hard, okay? So, you know, it's just it's a little nerve-wracking, but then you get it over with. You get it over with right away, and you get to sit back and enjoy the rest of the story. So let's give a huge, welcoming, supportive round of applause for Sasha Forbath. <laughs> So I have a bit of a confession to make. Um, not only have I never been to a story slam, I've never told a story at a story slam. So bear with me. Um, the beginning of my story takes place in a rural village in Nepal. This past year, I lived in Nepal for four and a half months where I studied abroad. Now, this story, of course, like many of the stories that will be told tonight, has to do with a flesh-eating critter. Not only one flesh-eating critter, probably about half a dozen or a dozen. Um, so the beginning of this story takes place one morning in Nepal when I came out of my tent, and I had maybe about three dozen red dots all over my body, and I couldn't figure out where they came from. And I went around to the villagers, and I started asking, like, what is this? In Nepali, of course, people in this village, for the most part, didn't speak English. And they kept saying, upanyas, upanyas. Um, that means bed bugs. No, wait, I take that back. That means fleas. I learned that later on. I thought it was bed bugs. Turns out it was fleas. But like many small villages, there's a bit of a gossip train that ensues. So it became known that this Badashi foreigner had the case of Upanyas, and everybody in the village tried to figure out where my Upanyas came from. I had people coming up to me asking me, like, your red dots? Let me see them. And they had me take off my shirt. Every day, more dots would appear, more bites would appear. If you look at my legs now, they are scarred with a lot of flea bites that have now healed. Because it turns out fleas, flea bites, very, very itchy and often scar if you scratch them and blood, if you draw blood, scars will appear. That ended up happening. So I was walking around this rural village in Nepal called Samigao, and I definitely became known as the girl, the Badeshi with the fleas. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's really the impression I wanted to give off or what I wanted to be known as, but it kind of became my token, um, my uh, token thing. And so eventually, as you can imagine, there was a little bit of a language bar barrier, having only been there for two and a half months at that time, knowing no Nepali when I first arrived. Eventually I learned that chickens tend to be the home for many fleas. I didn't know this at the time, but the tent I was staying in was right near a whole bunch of chickens that my family had for eggs. Every morning I'd wake up, I'd fight with the chickens trying to get out of my tent, oftentimes making contact with them, which is when I assumed some fleas very unfortunately made it into my tent 
and onto my sleeping bag. Now, when the director of my program finally told one of the staff members who also was a um, native to this village about my predicament and how each night I was getting more and more bites on my body and waking up very uncomfortable and very bloody too. Sorry to get a little graphic. Um, but eventually he took it upon himself to go into my tent. And I don't know if many people are familiar with fleas, but the way to get rid of them is you put everything you own out in the sun. And that's the way to kill them. He went into my tent, got everything out of my tent, and put it on the roof of the house in the sun. He informed me, after careful inspection, there was one flea he did find in my sleeping bag. And his assumption actually was that this one flea bit me about 250 times all over my body. That one flea was the source of all this pain, all this um, suffering, which I still find hard to believe to this day, but that was the only flea that was found. Um, <laughs> so I, it's hard to tell if there was more than one flea involved, but there were certainly many chickens involved. For sure many chickens involved. Um, and um, though to this day I will never know if it was the chickens or the baby goats or the lambs um, that gave me this flea infestation that happened all over my body. Um, to this day, every day when I look down on my legs, I will be reminded of my time in Simigao, and it will always hold a close place in my heart, because I thought that maybe these bites would go away, maybe these scars would eventually fade. My mom told me she had scar cream to get rid of the scars. After being home maybe about two and a half months, I've kind of come to accept that I don't think these scars are going away. I think I'm gonna be walking around for the rest of my life with these beautiful red dots all over my body. And um, I thought that was very fitting for the theme tonight. And since I am still on this self-acceptance journey of walking around with red dots all over my body knowing they're never going away, I thought it was very fitting when I walked in tonight and found out the theme was in the flesh. So I figured I would, as a part of my journey, come out of the closet in a way about this flesh-eating critter that definitely left its mark on me in a very permanent way. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night. And our next storyteller is Meredith. Meredith. I must admit, this is my first time, too. <laughs> Stripping naked in front of strangers is not something that really appeals to me at my age. Although I have lost some of my physical modesty over the years. However, when I was 20 years old, it was a lot more appalling a thought. So I was in Jerusalem this summer, and uh, I was studying in an ulpan, an intensive Hebrew 
course in Jerusalem. And one fine Friday morning, I boarded the bus for Haifa, got off of my classes, went up to Haifa for a very much anticipated family event. It was to be my sister's wedding weekend. Now, my sister had emigrated to Israel some years before, and she was marrying an Israeli guy named Arnon. And um, they were going to be having this very unconventional wedding. There were not to be any bridesmaids or any matching dresses or any bridal dress. Or it was basically uh, a post-hippie kind of affair, very casual. If you know Israelis, they're very, very casual. And I know my father was always appalled because his son-in-law never owned anything more formal than jeans. But I digress. I went up to Haifa that Friday morning so that I could meet my sister Leslie and her mother-in-law-to-be, Anita, on the street corner in the Merkaz section of Haifa, the kind of shopping district. Of course, we didn't have cell phones or any really good way to communicate at the time, so I had no idea what had happened in the past 24 hours, which is that my sister and Anita were standing on the appointed street corner at the appointed time, and she had a cast that went from here to here. And I thought, oh my god, is this another one of her practical tricks? Because I think I mentioned my sister has always been not really very conventional, and she never really does things in a conventional way. But the day before, right before her wedding, to have a cast, I thought was going to... My mind was reeling. I was thinking, well, what about the honeymoon? You're going to Africa on a safari. And she did go, and she hobbled around, and the natives all thought it was very entertaining. They didn't quite know what to make of her. But anyway, then I thought again, oh, no. She has to go to the mikvah. It's the ritual bath, the immersion. And she has to have a certificate signed in order for her to have a legal wedding. Because you see, in Israel, at least at the time, and probably now, in order to have this legal wedding, you, um, you had to be married by the Orthodox rabbinate. And we're a very proud Jewish family and all. And she had conscripted, conscripted a reform rabbi to perform this hippie, casual, cool wedding out in a grove in the evening. But there was a little problem with that, which was that she did have to have a certificate of marriage by an Orthodox rabbi. But they figured that problem out. They decided that they would simply go to the rabbinate with the certificate of the mikvah in the morning, sign the appropriate papers, and then have the nice reform wedding an evening later, next day, in the grove. That was figured out. But this was another thing altogether. So she's standing there in the street corner with her mother-in-law, with the cast, and I'm saying, what are you going to do about the mikvah? And they both smiled. <laughs> and they were very calm, and they said, well, Meredith, we have that all figured out. <laughs> they said, you're going. <laughs> I'm going going to the mikvah. I'm 20 years old. I'm too young to be married. I hardly speak Hebrew at all. They're going to find me out. And, and, and 
you're going to go to the, to the rabbinate with a cast on your leg. Surely they will put one and one together and figure out you couldn't have possibly fully immersed in water with the cast. I really had no choice. We had to go right then and there. So they hustled me into their Volkswagen and off we went to the mikvah. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been to a mikvah, but this particular one in Haifa, it was not exactly what I would call a spa. <laughs> it was small, damp, and the mikvah lady was big. She was wearing a house dress and a babushka, maybe a shadal under. I'm not, oh, oh, I have to finish. All right, anyway, it all was very quick from here. I had to take everything off, take a shower, take all of my jewelry, everything off, 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 pure, descend with the babushka, leading the way down the steps into a little square tub. It was warm, a little green around the edges. One, two, three immersions. Baruch Mumbo Jumbo, incantations, Gampure, I leave. She hadn't yet asked me any personal questions, which was really my deepest fear. And I put my clothes on. I uh, go back to the waiting room. My sister and her mother-in-law are smiling broadly. And all the ladies are saying, Mazel Tov to the happy bride. I signed my sister's name and wanted to just beat it out of there. They all said, Mazel Tov. And to this day, as far as I know, the authorities have never found out <laughs> that I was the imposter bride. Storyteller to the stage is Sue J. All right, well, I guess tonight is the night of novice because I also have not told the story up here yet. <laughs> However, I do have my three daughters here who don't know anything about this story yet. <laughs> So I'm not much of a storyteller. I leave that to my husband. I always go to the where, when, why, how, and what. <laughs> so we're here on the Cape in Dennis. I grew up in the 80s. I don't know if anyone else grew up in the 80s here on the Cape. If you got in trouble, was it a paddy wagon? Because it was in Dennis. So if you were in trouble, you ran. <laughs> If you didn't run, you were in the paddy wagon. So in the summertime, there's not a whole lot going on, and you end up at the beach one way or another. And we went, um, a whole bunch of us, skinny dipping, very platonically. It's just kind of what you did. But this particular night when we were skinny dipping, down the beach, you see like three of these flashlights bouncing up and down. <laughs> officers <laughs> and you run <laughs> well normally I would have run back to my clothes 
because you'd want to get dressed. But a couple months prior to that, I had a friend that was staying with me for the summer who was at a party that got broken up, and he needed me to come get him. So I get out of bed, I go pick him up, and he insists on taking his six-pack of beer, which had like four left in it. So I cover it up with his jacket in the back seat. It's three in the morning. I was driving a, a brown Pinto. There's no one else on 28 in Dennisport, so the officer pulled me over. He asked for ID, I gave it to him. He asked for my friend's ID, and he takes the jacket off his four beers to get his license out and hands it to the officer. I started giggling because I'm so nervous. I couldn't even talk. I, like, my legs are shaking, and I just, the more he asked questions, the more I giggled. <laughs> he pulled me out of the car, asked me to put my hands on the roof of my Pinto, and he arrested me. I, I mean, I had to be at work in like three hours. So, so, needless to say, Donnie got to drive my car home and I went to jail. I got out just in time to get to work. And um, that night, he was there to save me, the night that we went skinny dipping, because he was the closest friend to the beach that I was at. I saw the officer running back down the beach. There were three of them, but then there were more of them that we didn't see. And I had only one option, because I had already been arrested, was to <laughs> grab a shirt that was on the ground and run. <laughs> well, there was an officer in pretty good shape, too, and he chased me. <laughs> and he chased me for a way down the beach, but I happen to know this beach. This is the beach I was always at. And I ducked down this little trail, which I knew were a bunch of summer cottages. And I am so freaked out by spiders, but never thought about it at the time. Dove under this deck with my shirt in my hand. Like, seconds later, he's walking around on top of the deck. <laughs> I couldn't even breathe. I was just waiting for him to please not find me. As if he did at that point, like, Oh my God, I couldn't even imagine. So he walked around and I heard him walking around the grass. You can hear that grass crunching when there's nothing going on at night. He left. So I stayed there for a long, long time. <laughs> but all my clothes and my license and my wallet were back at the beach. I didn't have any friends coming looking for me. I didn't know what to do. So I, I threw the shirt on that I had and I walked to my friend Donnie's house, went in his back door, because you know, don't usually lock the houses on the Cape, or then we didn't, and grabbed some clothes of his and walked back down to the beach. Well, by then, everyone was gone, all my belongings were gone, cell phones weren't a thing, and my brothers show up. Well, the officer brought all my things home. <laughs> so that's the story of me in the flesh. <laughs> Storyteller will be MB. Cachetta. Woo! So, my dad loved football. And he loved football so much he had all the hats and he watched 
Monday night football and weekend football, but nothing made my dad prouder than seeing his three sons dressed up in tights and pads on their thighs and shoulder pads and corsets and helmets so that they could get out on a field with a bunch of other kids and slam into each other and like clobber each other and get brain damage. That made my dad really happy. So my three brothers played and my family was obsessed with football. We went to, we went, we belonged to this um, uh, organization, maybe you know of it, like Pop Warner football, it's like a little league. And so um, we went to banquets and we had picnics and we had football games and they had scrimmages and they had double sessions and they had practices and they had everything all the time. And my mom's sport was basically comparing us to the other football families and deciding we were better than everybody. But that's another story. Um, and my mom also really loved football, and she, she, she was always in the stands or on the sidelines, and, and you could always hear her, and, and, and I was always so embarrassed because she was like, get him, kill him, get the ball. It was crazy. She would become this monstrous football mother. I don't know if that's a thing. Anyway, one time um, my middle brother, who really hated football, but he had to play because if you didn't play, you called everything into question, and then like you were gay or whatever. It was the 70s. And so um, he was out there playing, and he got knocked cold, and he was out, and the team doctor, and all the refs, and all the coaches, and the other team, and everyone was standing around him, and finally he got up, came to, and the um, team doctor like walked him off, and everybody clapped, and the team doctor's like, it's okay, he just got his bell rung. Now, the team doctor was my father. <laughs> so the poor kid had to sit there and like, you know, shake it off and get back out and play for the last quarter and it's crazy. Anyway, um, I was not a big football fan, as you can probably tell by the way I'm telling the story. I'd like sat on the porch and tried to stay out of it and like I read Anna Karenina or whatever, like was not <laughs> doing the football thing. I tried to steer clear. Um, but, uh, and we never really kind of got like why my, it was such a big deal that my dad was a father, my father was a doctor, but um, it seemed to be a really big deal in my family. His parents were second generation Italians and they were factory workers and they didn't have any money to send him to medical school, but they really wanted him to go. And he was kind of ambivalent about it, but he married my mom and my grandfather on my mom's side was, um, had just gotten off the boat, you know, and from Italy and had learned how to be a carpenter because he made um, coffins in World War I for the soldiers. It was like he really knew he was a great carpenter. He had money. He sent my dad to medical school. And my dad was, was he, he was a very good doctor by all accounts, but he was sort of weird about it. Like he made all our friends in the neighborhood call him doctor. And like, if like some dumb nose picker like was like Mr., he, my dad would be like, no, it's doctor. And we were all like, ugh, you know. And this one time I found out really what it was all about. And, and it happened in, I was five years old and it was Thanksgiving, it was like 1971. And uh, we, we were at my grandmother's house and we were having Thanksgiving dinner with all my mom's family. And the turkey was eaten and cleared away and the pies were out. And I was a little kid and I was like, I don't know, farting around under the table, playing with one of my cousins. And when I got up to uh, stand up, I put my hand uh, on the table and I poured boiling hot coffee down on my face. And here was my father, who really never had m much attention for me because, you know, he had his boys, 
carrying me to this sink full of dishes and shoving my head in and you know, pouring water on me. And he took me home and he wrapped my head up like a mummy and they gave me pain medication. And I didn't know what was going on, but you could see from all of their blanched faces that it was very bad. So um, it was the 70s, and I was hopped up on pain medication and five years old. So, of course, they like, are like, go play with your brothers. So down I went to the basement, you know, like, <laughs> And my three brothers are, like, playing with their, uh, this, like, tr you know, plastic track with, with uh, cars and stuff. And they're in the corner by the wine cellar. My dad had this hobby of making wine, and he had, like, written away and gotten these labels that said, you know, Cachetta and Sons, and, you know, there they all were. Yeah, I mean, I really, I couldn't get any cachet in this family. But anyway, <laughs> there I was, like a mummy, right? And my brothers all get up, and they surround me, and they're like, whoa, does it hurt? And I was like, no. <laughs> and they go back to their you know, cars, and that was my moment of attention from my brothers. Anyway, I got a lot of attention from my dad because he found out um, that, oh my gosh, the last thing you're supposed to do is wrap someone up like that. He asked a plastic surgeon, and they were like, no, so they cut it all off of me, and my face was very severely burned. I never went to the hospital, I never saw a doctor, except for my friend's dad, who was an eye doctor, who declared I would not be blind in my scorched eye. My brothers were like calling me pizza face. I mean, my head was misshapen, I was, it was awful, it was really awful, and it hurt. But every day my dad would put me up on the kitchen counter and he'd scrub really, really slowly and peel away the skin peel it away and peel it away every single day for months. Like my dad was healing me and I could tell. And I was afraid of my dad so I never said anything. <laughs> and my brothers were like, pizza face. And I was like, yeah, but dad's like healing me. <laughs> so anyway, um, nothing is left. He really did heal me. My, my face went back to normal. Um, I have a very tiny dark scar on the side of my face. That's about it. And then there are these weird little like su suction cups in here where the hair never grew back. And um, you know, sometimes I'm unconscious. I used to feel them all the time when I was anxious and I would think, oh, I'm like an alien. And this is the proof that I'm on this weird, violent male planet where I do not belong. And you know what? My dad is the only other person in the world who knows how much I don't belong. To the stage. It's been ladies' night, but now we have Jay Cleary. Jay Cleary. It was the summer of 1969, July 11th to be exact, and I was working in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire, restaurant as a salad boy. Great job, almost 17 years of age, get to cut the salads for the restaurants, get to leave in the middle of the day and go surfing with my friend Pete and come back for the night shift. So on this particular evening, 
I get a phone call in the intercom from the casino ballroom. Anybody familiar with that place? Been there? Great venue. A lot of bands have played there in the past. We need some lemons for the dressing room. No problem. Do you want them in circles or quarters? <laughs> quarters. Okay, I can do that. So I run into the refrigerator and I pull two lemons out. I grab my French knife, I cut them into quarters. I get a bowl, I put ice in the bowl, I get lemons, and I make sure I'm wearing my apron because I am the salad boy. <laughs> I walk the entire length of the Hampton Beach Casino at six o'clock at night, rush hour in the restaurant, with my lemons, and the casino was a block long, and we're at the far end where the restaurant is, and the ballroom is at the other end. And as I'm walking along, I'm noticing there's people already lining up for the show tonight. I'm thinking, well, this is pretty weird. It's only 6 o'clock. Doors don't open till 8. So I get to the door, and it's garage doors. They usually keep them closed, but one of them was halfway open, so I duck. I start up the stairs, and a bouncer stops and says, hey, what are you doing? Lemons for the dressing room. Oh, no problem. Go ahead. Got halfway up the stairs to the landing. Another guy standing there. Hey, where the hell are you going? Lemons for the dressing room. <laughs> Not a problem. Go right up. Get to the top of the stairs. There's a cop there. What are you doing here? I got lemons for the dressing room. Oh, go right ahead. <laughs> wow, I've got like the hall class of all times. You know, this is great. So then I get to the dressing room door and I knock on and it's a plywood makeshift dressing room. The door opens and I said, well, I got lemons here for the dressing room and the band turns around and looks at me and so does she, Janice Joplin. So, and I look like Ernie of my three sons. My hair was dark, a little bit longer than it is now and I had tortoiseshell glasses and I said, well, I've got some lemons here for you. And she said, thank you very much, put them right down there. And I said, anything else? And she said, no. And I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. So I went back to the restaurant and made salads for the rest of the night. And I work in the restaurant with a lot of um, kids my age. And one was my best friend, Pete, we used to go surfing with all the time. So at the end of the night, we cleaned up. Pete had a uh, little room across from the casino. They had like what they call the helps cottage. It was a dive, but it was okay because it was a shower there. So we used to go there after work and shower because it was a little bit warm in the restaurant. And I said, hey, Pete, you want to get into Janis Joplin's dressing room? <laughs> and he said, how are you going to do that? And I said, well, I got in once. We can do it again. <laughs> so we changed wicked quick, just threw on a pair of dungarees and a t-shirt. And he said, hey, why don't we get him some beer? And I said, great idea. So he grabbed a six-pack of beer out of the refrigerator that held nothing but beer. We ran back to the restaurant. I got two more lemons. I cut them up. I got a bowl, <laughs> put ice. I said, Pete, take that six-pack. We had a metal insert. Put it in the bottom. We'll cover it with ice, and we'll put Coca-Cola and ginger ale on top, and we'll just walk down and walk in. So there we are. We're walking along the casino again. Pete's got his canister, and I got my lemons. Now the place is packed, and they're still waiting in line to get in. So we walk up the stairs. Where are you going? Oh, I got more lemons for the dressing room. Oh, no problem. Go right ahead. <laughs> Great. Get to the top, and the guy that owns the casino named John Deneen is standing there in a sport jacket and a necktie 
Where are you boys going? Mr. Nina, I have more lemons for the dressing room. Oh, good man. Get them whatever they want. Get them whatever they want. <laughs> Woo, this is great. So then we go to the door. I knock on the door, and they open it up again. I said, I've got more lemons. Come on in. And then Pete, by the way, looks like Sean Penn from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He does. Blonde hair, potted down the middle, really goofy guy. He puts down the canister. Boom. Anybody want a beer? And he pulls out a six-pack. Now, Hampton Beach was a dry town, so there was no beer in that dressing room. And we were their best friends. And so I'm standing there, and I'm, and I'm looking in the flesh at Janis Joplin, about my height, wearing kind of like a silk blouse with like a macrame little vest with big openings. What do you say to her? So it's like, well, where have you been last? She said, oh, we were in New York City. I'm going to be doing Dick Cavett. We've done the Yale Bowl, this and that. And I said, wow, that's pretty cool. She says, uh, you want some tequila? Sure. I'm 16 years old. Why not? <laughs> so I take the bottle and I take a drink. And she looks at me and stares and says, don't you know how to drink tequila? Well, no, I've never really drank it before. Well, this is what you do. You put the salt here. You lick the salt, then you take a shot, then you bite the lemon. So she takes about her 18th shot for the night and then says, now you try it. So I did, and I did it, and I bit the lemon, and she said, well, that's great. She went on, played for the night. We came back at the end of the night, and uh, she had a bit of a difficult night on stage. Unfortunately, she'd been drinking uh, way too much. <laughs> and, 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 and it was sad. They literally booed her off the stage. It happened. So Pete and I were in the dressing room at that time when she came back in, and she started swearing up a storm and saying some expletives about Hampton Beach and the people there, but she looked and said, but you guys are okay. You guys are okay. And I said, well, thank you very much. I said, I gave her a napkin. I said, could I have an autograph? She said, yeah, here you go. She gave me an autograph, and I stuck it in my pocket, headed out. That's my story. All right, so let's welcome um, our co-producer, friend, ultimate awesome helper, and host of his own nomadic story slam in Newton, Jerry Riley. They say curiosity killed the cat, and I believe it's true. Uh, you know, in the flesh is like in you know right in front of you, immediate, and that you know everybody thinks that's the most powerful, that's the most real. But I think sometimes the imagination is more powerful. And the thing that powers the imagination is mystery. A mystery is an amazing thing that kind of grabs you. So about nine years ago, we were down here, like every summer, camping at Payne's Campground all summer long. Anybody who knows me know I always have a project. And the crazier the project, the better. And this summer, I had a project. And I was working on it in my spare time all through July. Slowly took shape. Got to be about August, and it was all coming together. We were testing things out on the power lines at night. I said to my wife, you know, I think we're ready to go. Uh, now we need an audience. So we're camping in the woods, and how do you get a big audience? So I said, I want to run an experiment. So for a week, every person I ran into all strangers in parking lots and stores, on the beach, in the campground. Everybody I bumped into, I, say, I would just walk up to them and say, next Sunday night, 
we're going to unveil a spectacle never before seen on Cape Cod. And you are invited. It's going to be amazing. And they say, well, what is it? And I'd say, it's a mystery. And they say, well, what kind of mystery? An amazing mystery. You've you got to go see this. I said, we'll have a beach fire. There'll be music. Nine o'clock, Whitecrest Beach. Be there. Bring anybody you want. Well, the first time I did it, I felt a little weird, you know? Well, I did it, but after a couple of times, I kind of got the hang of it. And then all week long, I was just going up to random people and doing this thing. A few days later, I'm on the beach, and somebody comes up and says, are you the guy with the mystery? And I thought, ooh, this is going, you know? And uh, he said, my friend told me about it, and so what is it? And I said, all things will be revealed in time. It's a mystery. Come on down, you know? So we was thinking this is going to work, but like by Friday, I go into the South Wealthy General Store in the morning, like we did every morning. I put something on the counter, I don't know, a box of cereal or something. I say to Drew, the guy behind the counter, I said, how much is that, Drew? And he said, it's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, I knew we, we, the, the word's getting out here. So Sunday night comes along, 8 o'clock, we get down on the beach, we haul all this wood and you know, guitars and all this equipment. And we set up the beach fire and about 30 feet away. We put all this equipment. We put a big tarp over it, the sign, danger, keep back. About 10 to 9, car pulls in. Somebody's walking down the dune. By 9 o'clock, people, it's like an anthill. People are streaming down the dunes. And it's like, all right, we got a crowd here. So everybody comes immediately. They want to know what it is. And we just milk it, you know. We, we like, oh, we'll get the music. We'll get to that or whatever. But by about, about 20 past 9, people getting real antsy. So we walk over to this pile, 30, 40 feet away, pull out these two tripods. They each have bicycle wheels on them. We set them up on the sand. And then turn the switch. And the entire dune at Whitecrest, which is, I don't know, 100 feet high, lights up with this drawing of a caveman. And this thunderous voice, this narrator says, since the dawn of time, the human race has been in a never-ending quest for better and better recreational activities from the caves of Mesopotamia. And it's going on and on. And these images are flashing up. There's, you know, Roman guys with discus and medieval guys and jousting and like all these recreational things coming closer and closer to the present day. And then it's like balls and yo-yos and, you know, the images are flashing, the narrators, you know, going on and on. And then it, it sort of culminates in this big, you know, climax at the end and said, ladies and gentlemen, we give you King Pong! And there on the dune, 100 foot high, is the first video game, Pong. <laughs> Boop! <laughs> Boop! Two big paddles, and these bicycle wheels steal the paddles. And, and for the next two and a half, three hours, the little batteries ran down. Uh, this crowd of people played uh, giant Pong on the dunes in Wellfleet. Now, if, if I had gone to these random strangers and said, we have a giant Pong game, come to the beach, they would have never have come. But the thing that made them get there, it was the mystery. It drove them all crazy. They had to be there for the mystery. And uh, so sometimes, you know, in the flesh isn't the ultimate. That's my story. <laughs> Can we have to the stage Greg J? Greg. Greg. All right, so I, I did tell a story the last time for uh, the show must go on. So that was my first time. So this was my second time. And last time, I'm pretty sure these ladies saw my leg was like, you know, doing the whole Jimmy thing. So I feel a little bit more comfortable tonight. 
I'm married to the naked girl that was hiding under the deck. All right? Thank you. Thank you. You know. And so equally, I'm going to embarrass my girls, who all three are here tonight. So needless to say, we got married nine months to the day. My first daughter was going to be born. I, kind of a short series of three in the fleshes. So my first daughter's born. Doctor comes in. My wife's pushing. She's not coming. My daughter is not coming. So he pulls out this suction cup thing. Gets in there. I'm, no lie to the word. Foot on the edge of the bed. My daughter comes out. She's got the cone head, broken, broken collarbone. So I'm like, great. So that was a natural childbirth. Un unbelievable. Most incredible thing I've ever seen. Now, my second daughter I'm going to save. My third daughter, C-section. Incredible. Just being able to watch what happens and see a, a, a child come out on mom's belly. Everything's, you know, there. I kinda, I'm kind of into that stuff, so it was cool. Um, so I got to see a natural childbirth. I got to see a C-section. My middle daughter, Kayla. Now, mind you, one's pure blonde, the other one's a redhead, and I got a dirty blonde hair. So they're all, so they're all different. But my middle daughter, Kayla, she was the one. We get to the hospital. My wife says, hey, water broke. We've got to get to the hospital. We get to the hospital, and we get in this birthing suite. It was unbelievable, beautiful. End of the bed is this wand. So being the dolt I am, I grab the wand, and I press the button, and these two lights like these. So now here I am, jackass, running around the room. And these lights are following me all around the room. Two seconds later, here comes the doctor. Hey, Mr. and Mrs. Giselle, hey, I'll take that. <laughs> so, so I sit quietly in the, you know, in the chair, and he checks Susie out, and, and he says, uh, okay, well, I, I think it's time to push. Well, get ready to push, you know? So he grabs the wand, and he, he takes the wand and, you know, zooms down in on my wife's area. And out, of, and out of nowhere, he looks at me, and he looks at my wife, and I look at my wife, and I start laughing. And he says, let me preface this. My middle daughter was born on December 28th, okay? 27. So, oh, sorry. I got an excuse for that. I have an excuse. My nephew was born on the 28th. So, all right, all right, all right, all right. Bash me later. So December 27th, she was born. So me and the doctor now zoomed in. He looks at me, I look at him, I start laughing. And he say, bold face, says to my wife, my Mrs. Giselle, that's awful nice body powder you have. For Christmas, my mother had given my wife some Victoria's Secret glitter body powder. <laughs> so, 
I got to, I got to witness a natural childbirth, a C-section, and I'm not lying to you, a disco birth. <laughs> this looked like Studio 56 opened in my wife's crotch. So, so, I'm not lying. I can't make this stuff up. So, in the flesh, times three, but my middle daughter was definitely the most memorable. Thank you. Eric J. to the stage. Woo! The plan for the day of my high school graduation was pretty easy. I was going to go to the ceremony, have dinner with my parents, and then hang out with my kind of girlfriend, Karen Pinkney. But when I was invited at the last minute to the party that the most popular kid in school was having, it suddenly dawned on me that I was going to have to abandon my parents and betray Karen Pinckney. <laughs> now, I don't even remember what this kid's name was, just that people spoke with him with such reverence that they always referred to him by his entire name, his first and last name. And we had heard about this barbecue at school for weeks. There were rumors that it was going to be catered and that the parents were buying all the booze so that they would never run out. And I got so excited. As soon as the ceremony was over, I went straight over to the barbecue. I didn't even go, go home to change, so I was wearing my cap and gown when I got to the kids' party. <laughs> I wasn't the only one. Now, I could have brought Karen Pinckney to the party with me, but I didn't because I am a terrible person. <laughs> and I thought if I didn't bring her, I might do better which makes me sad thinking about it right now because she was kind of great. But at that time, <sighs> and my hunch turned out to be true. Almost as soon as I walked into the party, this girl Claire comes running up to me and she says, you know, Abigail and me are thinking about going skinny dipping over at her house later, so stick around. <laughs> what? Claire was totally out of my league. I mean, she talked to me, but I thought the only reason she talked to me is our dads worked together so we didn't have to like come up with things to talk about. And my dad once asked me actually if I knew her and, and, and I said yes. And he said, that girl has a lot of problems, stay away from her. <laughs> so that made me worship her even more. The party was everything that everybody said it would be. There were shrimps and steaks and kegs. And finally, Claire comes up to me and says, okay, let's go. And we go out front, and there's this guy sitting in a car. And I know the guy. His name is Jimmy. He's kind of a neighborhood ne'er-do-well. And he's probably in his early 30s, but he hangs out a lot with the high school kids. <laughs> and I realize that Claire is with him and I'm meant to be with Abigail. And that's fine, Abigail kind of looks like Charlize Theron and you know, it's high school, I'm like, what the hell? So, I get into the car and we take off. Now it turns out Abigail lives in a gigantic, 
gigantic mansion just up the hill from where my house is, but like way up the hill, like, like, like a world away. Like the only time I've ever been that high up on the hill was when my dad took me to pick up a cat when I was seven years old because the people in one of the mansions, purebred Siamese cats, had gotten knocked up by a neighborhood tomcat and they were trying to get rid of them. <laughs> and there I am in the pool at this luxurious house making out with Abigail and I start thinking, wow, things have really changed a lot for me since I graduated high school. <laughs> I was a mere mortal. Now I am a god. I have transcended the flesh. And that's when the vomiting started. <laughs> now, it would be a better story if it was me who was throwing up, but it was Abigail, and she got up and she ran into the house, and Claire chased after her and said, uh, uh, we'll be right back, just, just give us a couple of minutes. And 10 minutes pass, and 20 minutes pass. And Jimmy and I are still in the pool, and we sort of like glance over at each other every once in a while, like, But neither of us says anything. And Clara then finally comes to that house and says, she wants both of you to leave right now. Jimmy does not even offer me a ride home. But that's okay, because like I said, I only live a couple of blocks away, and it's all downhill. So the next day I wake up, my parents are really mad at me. And for years, I have to hear the story about how on the night of my high school graduation, they go to this really special restaurant, have to sit there and eat by themselves while all the tables around them are buzzing with proud, happy parents and their children. And Karen Pinckney never talks to me again in my life. All for what? Sometime during that day, I realized I've lost my cap and gown. So I go back over to the party house. The kid isn't there, but his father is there. And he says the cleaning crew didn't come up with, yeah, they had a cleaning crew. <laughs> but he said, you're welcome to look around. But that was gone too. Thank you. Storyteller is Meryl Cohen. Okay, so it was the summer before seventh grade, and my family had decided to move from Long Island, I mean, sorry, from Brooklyn to Long Island while I was at summer camp. So I come home, new house, new neighborhood, I don't know anybody, and I decide I need to meet this boy who I know lives around the corner so I promptly start to stalk him. He's the first person I've ever stalked. I wish he was the only one. <laughs> so what I did, I took my dog and I walked him past his house every day, like five times a day. This dog had never been walked so much before in his life and he would look at me like I was fucking crazy. What, you're walking me again? Yes, we have to go meet Steven. So I would walk past, never came out. Finally one day after weeks of doing this, 
he emerges from his house, and he sees me, his stalker, and he yells, hey, if your dog had to pee, he would have done it already. <laughs> so I say to him, well, what do you know about the physiology of urination in canines? <laughs> and we immediately became friends. Well, first, first he invited me over uh, to see his rat. So I went up with him to his bedroom. He takes the rat out of his cage. He puts it in my hands. I don't want to seem like somebody who's afraid of a rat, so I hold it for a while, and then I give it back to him. And then he says, um, would you also like to see my penis? <laughs> now, at this point, I sort of know that the rat was just a cover. <laughs> so I say yes. So he shows me, and he explains a few things, like this is what it looks like, soft, mine goes to the left. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then we go downstairs and we have hot chocolate with his mother. <laughs> so we became fast friends, and he was really, he was the kind of kid that did a lot of things that I didn't know how to do. I learned a lot. So. <laughs> One thing was, he convinced our 17-year-old neighbor, now we're 12, okay, so he convinced our 17-year-old neighbor Marjorie to teach us to drive. So we're driving all around this, first in the deserted neighborhood, and then in another neighborhood, and then sometimes without her, and he also knows how to break into houses. And so we break into, not houses that are occupied, these model houses, and we just pretend that we live there. And, you know, we lie in the bed, we take a nap, we use the refrigerator, we, you know, and we hang out there. Um, this went on for a couple of years, and then uh, tragically, in, in uh, the end of eighth grade, he moved away. And I was really heartbroken. He was like my friend, my boyfriend, my whatever, but like my soulmate, you know, and he moved away, and I was really, really sad. Um, we stayed in touch and, you know, always. We always stayed in touch and we would go and visit each other and all of that. And about a year after he moved away, actually, he called me and he came out to me. And I said, well, you know, I know because you were reading The Happy Hustler and also I think you fooled around with my boyfriend. <laughs> and like a couple of years after that, I came out to him and he was like, yeah, duh, because your boyfriend was kind of fake anyway. <laughs> So, um, when we were in our late 20s, um, he called me to tell me that he had HIV. And at that point, uh, you know, by the time people were tested, things tended to progress pretty quickly, and he got, he got sick pretty quickly. And um, there was a period of time, he wasn't really telling me, you know, like how it, that it was progressing. Anytime I talked to him, he said he was doing well. So this one day that I talked to him, it was the winter, it was really cold out, and he needed to cheer himself up, and so he was planning his summer vacation, and he said, I'm going to rent a place in Provincetown, I would really love it if you would come and stay with me for a week. And so I said, sure, we'll just pick dates. We got off the phone, and like five minutes later, his mother called me, and she said, I heard your conversation, and if you want to see him, you'd better come now. So I got on a plane the next day, and so... When I was on my way to see him, I was just thinking, this is like the closest friend I've ever had. I want this to be meaningful because I know I'm going to be saying goodbye to him. And I just really want to tell him how much he means to me. And I just want to, I don't know, I want to share something important with him. And I sort of imagined, like, I didn't have a realistic expectation in my head. I sort of imagined that he'd be 
like on his bed and we would be lying around like we did when we were, you know, 13 on the, the mattress in his basement. So when I, like, his mother led me into his dark bedroom and he was lying on the bed and he was really emaciated and had sores all over his skin and he was like vomiting into a bucket. So um, the first thing he said to me was, wow, you really need a haircut. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll, yeah. And um, I tried to tell him, like, I wanted the, you know, I just tried to steer the conversation around what I wanted to say, which was, you know, I really love you. You're the closest friend I've ever had. And he said, you know, you've, you've always lived in the past. And then I knew, like, I really got it by the way he said it, that he just needed me to be in the present with him. And I just really had to give up my agenda. Like, I could not have a meaningful conversation with him. I just needed, I needed to be with him. So we talked a little bit. He vomited a little bit. We talked a little bit. He vomited a little bit. And then um, he told me he had this um, male nurse who was coming over. Like, he would help him bathe and stuff like that. And he said, you know, when I get better, I'm going to date him. <laughs> so I went into the kitchen uh, a little bit later and I, I said to his mother does does he he says he's going to date him does he really not know and she said you know I don't know what he thinks but I don't think he's going to be here for more than a week or two um when I went oh and then she handed me some photo two photographs that we had taken in seventh grade that he had saved of the two of us in a photo booth together and she wanted me to have them so I went back into his room and he was sleeping and I just leaned over his bed and I kissed the top of his head and I said I love you and I started walking toward the door knowing that I was never going to see him again and I just heard his voice like this weak soft voice saying I do have a dying wish so I thought okay this is it this is going to be the meaningful thing so I walked back over to his bed and I leaned down next to him really close and he says please cut your hair <laughs> And so on, his, on the way to his funeral a couple of weeks later, I did. Graham, Graham. Woo! This is my first time out here too. Um, um, Super excited to be here. It's super cool. I'm loving it. So, who here has been skydiving? Hands. Anybody? Yeah, we go. Skydiving. Skydiving? Yeah, we got some. So, I've always wanted to go skydiving my whole life. And finally the day came. I moved to Hawaii for a little while last year. And I thought, what better place to do it than Hawaii? So, I call up on my buddies and I'm like, we're going skydiving. And they're like, yeah, let's go. We're not going to go with you, like, actually skydiving. <laughs> but we're going to accompany you on your journey. So <laughs> that's half the battle, I guess. So, so they come with me. We all go out to the spot. Skydive Hawaii, very fitting name. Um, it's on Oahu, beautiful, North Shore. And uh, so I don't know if you know, but it's got to be like a perfect day to go skydiving. Like a perfect day in our book is not a perfect day for skydiving. It's like literally no clouds in the sky. Like just gotta be perfect. So we go, we're like, we're doing it. 
and they're like, you're not doing it today. Like, it's not a perfect day. So we wait there all day. My friends are like, you know, we got things to do. You know, we don't want to jump out of a plane with you. Let's get a move on. So we come back alone next time by myself. Perfect day, perfect skydive day. So here, we, here I am. So the first thing they make you do at this place is watch a video, like an instructional skydiving video about how to jump out of a plane. It's, I, don't, it, I don't understand why. But so you sit down, right, and they're like, you're like, do I watch this? You know, I don't, this is going to make me more terrified. Do I watch this? Do I need to know, you know, like if another plane comes, you know, if there are other skydivers in the vicinity, you know, like if there are birds, things that you run into while skydiving, you know, like do I need to, do I need to watch this? So I didn't really watch. But, um, and then they send you out, right? They send you out like on to outside where all this, like the skydivers are. And the, this is Hawaii, right? So these guys are like, they're like taking naps and like there's like wildlife running around and like there's a bar out there and I'm like, I'm like, you guys should really be reading your like, you know, skydive manual, you know, or something before you, I, you take my life in your hands. So they're not, they're like listening to music. They're like shirtless, not wearing shoes. You know, this is like not, this is a very, you know, like chill spot, you know, like, you know, chill. So, so I'm like, and I'm scouting out, you know, because you're like, you're, you have an instructor that go with you. You don't go solo. You have to go tandem. So I'm like scouting out, you know, these people. I'm like, I'm like, who is going to literally end my life or save my life in the next, you know, like hour? So I'm like, okay, who looks good? So up comes my guy. He's like, you know, he's, he's like, what's up, dude? Like, how you doing? He's like, yeah. He's like, you ready to jump out of the plane, dude? I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> and he's like, he's, you know, just like long hair, like super tan, like, like the black tan, like from the story before. <laughs> I, just, I just thought of that. But, and uh, so, you know, he's like, so I'm like, what do I need to do? You know, like, when we go out, you need to tell me what to do. And he's like, dude, don't just just chill with it, dude, just like float with it. And I'm like, no, no, no. You know, he's like, and he goes like this to me, he goes, I've been doing this for a long time. Everything I tell people to do when they jump out of the plane, they just don't do it. They're jumping out of a plane. They just don't do it. They do whatever they want. They do whatever they want. They don't listen to me. So I say that makes pretty much good sense. So we walk, then we go, they're like, all right, here we go, out to our plane made of popsicle sticks, you know, like, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like smoke coming out the side, you know, like, like, you know. So, so out we go, and, you know, I'm, we're like walking out there, and like, you know, the, like, the guys, they're like, yeah, like this, yeah, you know, and like, out we go, we go all the way up there. There's like no seats in this plane. There's no seats, it's just benches. So we're like straddling the benches, you know, and they're like strapping you in. You know, and they're like, and the dudes are listening to music. They're like half naked. They're just like, you know, literally, like, like I could die. Like I could die. You know, I'm like, so, but at the same time, I was feeling pretty good. So I was like, this is cool. I always wanted to do this. So right when we get to like 14,000 feet, they like open up the door. You know, like it's like it's like a little like rickety like there's like a string on it with like a garage door and it's like. You know, 
and like, you know, it's like, it's like blowing, you know, like you're flying a plane, and the dudes are like hanging out it looks good down there today, boys, like, what? And we're like, okay, you know, like, they're like literally dangling at, you know, they got, the, you guys got your GoPros on, dude? Yeah, we got it. They're like, all right, here we go. So the first person, like, drops out, you know, literally, they're just like, you know, you, you have no control over your arms, you, you, you're, like, strapped onto this person. Gotcha. Okay, so, and, like, so, so out, like, the first person goes out, and I, like, lost my mind. I was like, this person literally just, they just, like, <laughs> and they're like, you know? And I was like, this is, I, I, what am I doing here? What am I doing? So finally, I went last. I went very last. And it was the most amazing, peaceful experience. One of the most amazing experiences of my life is over beautiful Hawaii, and it was just such a thrill, so amazing. And when I landed, you literally land just like right on your two feet. It's unbelievable. These guys are so good. You land, and I look back up there and was so happy that I experienced this wonderful experience in the flesh. Yeah. Jody. Okay, so it's uh, September 14th, 2000. I was diagnosed with stage four AML leukemia. And the day of, I go to the oncologist and she says, don't clean out your oven, don't uh, clean out the cat box, just get to the hospital. So I get to Yale New Haven Hospital and we go into the room and the first thing they have to do is install two ports, which are Hickman's into your basically your heart, right? They add these things so that they can administer um, the chemotherapy and they kept one free the whole time for when I was gonna have my um, stem cell transplant, which my brother was my donor. So I'm very fortunate. Um, both my siblings were perfect matches, six out of six. So the process goes, you know, they come into the room and they, you know, do some uh, local anesthetic to sort of numb the area so they're right here, two and two. And, um, you know, I don't know what the hell is going on. I'm just, like, oblivious to the whole thing. I'm like, just get it done. You know, this is going to be a speed bump in my life, and I'm going to get through this. And the time, um, at the time, my partner um, was just a total mess. You know, you can't go. You can't die. I need you, blah, 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 you know. And I'm like, this is just a speed bump. We're going to get through this. This is no big deal. And um, back in the day, I, I still suffer from OCD, but I, I suffered really bad back then, and I've gone to many programs for <laughs> to alleviate some of my OCD, and it benefits me in my work because I do housekeeping, and I clean like a son of a bitch. <laughs> um, and so, so I'm, when I'm in the room, I'm already like telling people like, I think we should put that over there. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like if, if we're gonna have company, we gotta kind of straighten up, you know, like this whole thing goes on. And so I'm in the hospital for literally um, almost five months straight through, never left. 
And so, you know, people would come and see me and, you know, and the same thing, I'd be like, okay, we have to like, you know, get everything cleaned up, you know, and I'm an artist, so like people would bring me stuff to like, you know, paint and color, you know, to keep my mind off it. And, um, but the, the part that comes from the flesh is that at any given time, um, you know, I had all kinds of things hooked up to me when I ever, I couldn't even leave the bed, basically. I just would, you know, do my over here, and then there would be over here. And, um, but they would just, you know, I, I used to be very shameful of my body and like, oh my God, I can't be naked, you know? And at one point I was just like, I would just, and I had these pajamas that my dad's, um, uh, girlfriend at the time gave me, they were um, Sleepy from uh, Walt Disney, and I just loved it. It was like this really loose top, and I would just, okay, like whatever needs to happen, you know, and I became like really comfortable being naked because they had to see me in all different forms. They were checking everything all the time. I came down with this like infectious disease, and they were, you know, constant and blood work being done, so I would just be like, oh, here I am. And so um, I come out, I'm good, everything is good, um, you know, but the time goes on. And so at the end of the whole process, um, you know, I go through like the four rounds of chemotherapy, full body radiation, cranial radiation, all this bullshit. And I still have these things in my chest after five months. And I'm thinking, well, when the hell do they come out? Like, am I gonna be living with these things? And they were ridiculous, like they were long and I had to like bag them when I went into the shower and it was just, I mean, it became part of my body and they went through my collarbones. And so the day that they're gonna be removed, this guy comes into the room and he looks like a fucking football player. He's gigantic. And I'm thinking, is this the guy that's gonna be the person that takes these out? And I'm thinking, well, it's going to go the same way. They're going to localize everything, and everything's going to be good. And I lay there, and this guy gets over the top of me, literally, like, on the bed with these, like, you know, big everything. And he just starts to yank. And I'm thinking, really? Like, where's the anesthetic? Like, help? Like, should I call a nurse? And he's, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm a registered, you know, he was a uh, physician's assistant, so I'm like, well, he has the qualifications, so, like, I'm just gonna let him do this to me. He's gonna start yanking. And, you know, I can feel every bit of my flesh, like, coming through my collar. And so one is finally... It's out, and I'm like, okay, it's great, it's great, it's great, it's out, it's out. You know, and he's like depressing, so you keep the blood down or whatever. And these things go like right into your heart, so it's like a direct line to your heart. And so the second one, and I'm thinking, oh my God, is it gonna go the same way? And I just looked, and I was like, all right, go for it, you know? And so he goes at it again and pulls them out, and I've got these beautiful little circles in my chest that I consider my battle scars. And you know, at any given time, I. I flash a lot, you know, like, I don't even care. <laughs> um, there's a the thing that happens in Provincetown every Monday night, it's called Showgirls, and in order to get these little squeaky pigs that you can put on your bike, and it's kind of like a token, you have to, the boys usually have to show something down here, but the girls sometimes show this, and at this point I was like, okay, like, I want one of those little pigs so bad. <laughs> So, so my friend Michelle, who's a really good friend, she's a little conservative, and um, she has a friend in town for the first time, doesn't know anything about what Provincetown is or what Showgirls is, and so they're sitting 
like in the second row. And, you know, I'm like ready to get up there. You know, I'm like, I'm putting my hand up. I want to get my pig. And her friend Emily is like, what's she going to do? And I didn't tell them that I was going to flash. And so I just get up there and I just, and then, you know, the guy that does, (laughs) Ryan does the show. He comes over and I think, it's just going to be quick, quick. I'm just going to whoop, whoop like this and I'm going to get my pig. No, I had to stand there with my shirt up. And it's basically all gay men that are in the audience. And there's some lesbian women, but, you know, most, mostly the guys don't really give a shit what they're looking at and maybe the women are interested I don't know and so so I'm like okay so I'm holding him there and then he comes by with this little pig and he starts you know like giving me the and I'm like oh geez but in the flesh I am like so comfortable now in the flesh it's not even funny (laughs) thank you for listening to the mosquito story slam podcast the mosquito is produced by title theater company Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff. For your next opportunity to join us, go to facebook.com slash mosquito story slam and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on soundcloud.com. And you can also find us on iTunes. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. <laughs>